The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1-13. through 13. The word of God speaks to us. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist." However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as real offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, this brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you, Emily. If you don't know me already, my name is Ryan Geekus, and I have the honor of serving on staff here at Frontline as the worship director, and uh, even more so have the privilege of opening up God's Word with you today as we continue in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. One of the things that I get to do and, and um, love the most in, in my position in particular is not only lead us in worship um, and lead our team there, but also help get to shape our liturgies. And if you've been around Frontline for a while, you're, you're familiar with those rhythms. Um, if you're newer here, you're probably like, this is kind of different. Um, you know, we, we practice, we do like the confession and assurance on a weekly basis. We have a benediction, we have a call to worship, and all of those things are helping us um, walk through, um, be reminded of, and journey through the gospel on a week-to-week basis. There's also a larger rhythm in the way of the Christian calendar, the Christian year. And unlike our calendar year, which starts in January, that starts with the season of Advent leading up to Christmas. And so we're used to practicing days like Christmas and Easter, um, some of those more familiar. But there are seasons in the Christian calendar, the Christian year, that help us, again, wrap our lives around Jesus and the narrative of the gospel. And so we're coming up on the season of Lent, which will lead us into Good Friday, to Holy Week, Good Friday, and Easter. But Lent is a season, 40 days, which will start this Wednesday, marked by repentance and renewal. And so we practice repentance week week in and week out during the Confession Assurance, and that is simply us coming to God, repenting, confessing our sin, and confessing our need for Him. But it doesn't land off of a cliff 
it lands on Jesus who returns in his, in his kindness to us and showers us with his grace and his new mercies that are available to us day in and day out. And so we practice this again and again. And so we want to invite you into this season of Lent, um, a season of personal reflection and repentance. We've created some ways for you to engage with that. Um, in the seat in front of you, there may or may not be a bookmark, um, but you can grab one of those. They will also be available at the desk outside if, if there's not enough there. Um, but this will help you walk through, help kick off Lent with the week of prayer. And in there are some guides and ways for you to um, pray with yourself, pray by yourself, um, or with your family each day. On Wednesday, we will gather here at 6.30 in the evening for our Ash Wednesday service, um, which will kick off the season of Lent. And then on Thursday... Um, we will have a time of, of prayer here um, at the church from noon to one. And so we want to invite you not only into the season of Lent, but this, this Wednesday, it's always a beautiful service where we get to direct our hearts towards Jesus and be reminded of all that he's done for us as we, as we inspect our own hearts and confess um, together. So, come, is, is, the, uh, is the announcement and the plea this morning. Why don't you pray with me as we prepare to open up God's word. Father, I thank you um, for this day, this day that, that you've made, a day in which you say that your mercies are new this morning, and I pray that those mercies would be felt, Lord, that your grace um, would be tangibly felt this morning as we open up your word. The places where, you're where there's conviction or where you're leading us to repentance, Lord, we know that you do that in your kindness. And I pray, Lord, that at the center of it all, would um, that Jesus, your son, would be lifted up. And that our affection for you would be stirred, that our hearts would be softened, that we'd be encouraged and we'd be built up. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you've been here over the last several months, you know that we're in a series in 1 Corinthians, and this is Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, and um, we skipped ahead and did a few weeks um, in chapter 16, um, talked about masculine virtue, really great series if you have time to go back and listen to that, and we're going back now to chapter 8, and um, I want to give a little bit of context so that we know um, what, we're, what we're talking about here and what Paul is addressing in the church, but the church in Corinth had some issues, and uh, there was many places in which they were experiencing division in the church and differing of opinions, and were trying to navigate um, Christian life in a, in a pagan city. And so what we find Paul doing in his letter is answering each of those questions and helping the church navigate, um, navigate their life there in Corinth and among themselves. And so in chapter 8, we find the next question he addresses, and it concerns food offered to idols in pagan temples, which, believe it or not, is one of the biggest questions we get in Coffee and Questions and uh, on our comment cards. Just kidding. <laughs> Demon meat um, isn't necessarily a hot topic in Edmond, Oklahoma. <laughs> um, but it is a massive issue, and it was a massive issue, excuse me, for the Corinthian Christians, and it still is a very real dilemma for Christians all over Asia, Africa, and even our friends in India 
and even those in our city who come from different backgrounds and different religions. And so that does not mean that there are not things we can learn from Paul in this chapter today and that it is not a relevant topic for us. The real question underneath the question is, how do we make decisions in gray areas of morality or places that Scripture doesn't directly speak? We're faced with them every day of our lives. Is it okay to drink wine or have a beer or two or three? Should I watch this television series? Under what condition is it okay to use marijuana or is it okay at all? How should I school my children? And so I'm going to answer all of these questions today and many more. (laughs) Not really, in case you believed me. Um, Corinth was like every Roman city of its day. It was intensely spiritual, but given over to the spirituality of paganism. And so there were temples and shrines to numerous gods everywhere throughout the city. Pagan customs were at the core of their cultural and their social lives. Christians in Corinth were constantly being confronted with their former way of life and their former gods. It was an inescapable daily occurrence. They were forced to wrestle with the pagan way of life, and this was especially true when it came to food, as we see here. Pagan temples were the restaurants, they were the pubs, the event venues of the day. If you wanted to go out to eat, you went to the temple of one of the various gods. If you wanted to gather with friends for a meal or celebrate a marriage or birthday, you did it at the temple. But even if you're a Christian and you wanted to avoid the life that takes place there in the pagan temples, you still had another problem. Most of the meat sold at the market was first a sacrifice in a temple butchered by a pagan priest. So in chapter 10, Paul addresses questions like, should you buy this meat when you don't know the origin of it? Should you accept an invite to dinner at the home of your non-Christian friend, knowing that they worship these gods, and the meal being prepared was first given in sacrifice to these lowercase gods? You can see how it must have been difficult to know how to live in a culture so entrenched in paganism. It was very difficult to be a Christian, and the decisions that they were having to make in light of it all were causing debate and division in the church. And so there were two camps within the church in Corinth. So some were of the opinion that it was no big deal. We will call this the permissive crowd. These, these lowercase gods, these idols that they're worshiping, they aren't real. And we all know that. That's what they would have meant by the phrase back up in verse 1 when it says, We all possess knowledge. And so Paul is there, you see that in quotes, he's quoting this, this crowd within the church of saying, yeah, we all, we all have knowledge that these gods aren't real. In, in, in their opinion, it might actually help you to get over your fears of going into these places and receiving food and thankfulness to the one true God. And so regardless of whether or not you can handle this, they would say, it's no problem for me and I'm not going to allow your weakness to keep me from enjoying a good time and a good meal. The other group Paul referenced as the weak in this passage, this is what we'll call the restrictive group. These were likely newer Christians who had recently come out of their life of paganism. They felt like it was a big deal and a complete compromise for them to engage in any of the practices of their former life felt like a betrayal 
of allegiance to Jesus. And so they wanted to avoid it at all costs. And so the main difference between these two groups of Christians was that the progressives or the permissive group were primarily concerned with their personal freedom that was afforded them in Christ. And the restrictive believers were primarily concerned with their personal morality. So their personal morality and the morality of others and living a life reflective of the radical change they'd experienced. And so it's important for us to name the reality that both of these concerns, carried out to their extreme, can either lead to licentiousness or legalism. Both carried out to their extreme can lead to licentiousness or legalism, both of which stand in great opposition to the gospel, and both of which are warned against by Jesus and throughout Scripture. And so even more important for us to name this morning is the reality that both of these tendencies exist in all of us. They all exist in all of us. And the argument between licentiousness and legalism is very much alive in the church today as we navigate what it means to live in a culture that is not primarily marked by devotion to Jesus. When it comes to moral decisions that fall into more gray areas, there are two ditches that we can be prone to, and that is legalism and license. And so let's look at ditch number one, legalism. This would be the restrictive or the conservative crowd. Legalism is marked by strict rules, mostly on what not to do, right? They would say, God is pleased with me because I keep the rules, and he's not pleased with you because you don't. It's a religious code typically on issues of alcohol, gambling, movies, music, and politics. If you grew up in the 80s, like me, it meant not watching Smurfs or He-Man, Whenever they are nervous about Scripture not being entirely clear on an issue, they rush to the issue and offer their own clarity, and more than that, a law. The scary thing about legalism is that the new rule becomes a standard of righteousness by which they judge themselves and others and are made to feel either far from God or close to God simply based on their ability to keep the rules. Never mind the condition of the heart and relating to Jesus. It's about the ability to keep religious commands. And this stands, like we said, in great opposition to the reality that Jesus is our true righteousness and closeness to God is built on him. Ditch number two, license. This would be the permissive or the progressive crowd. The license ditch is marked by an anemic concern that throws caution to the wind in the name of liberty. I can do it, so I will. And what's it to you? Christ has died for my sin, so it doesn't matter how I live and what I do. Forgiveness and grace is presumed upon. My righteousness is with him. Jesus understands my sin struggles. Never mind that this group doesn't, isn't actually struggling with their sin. There is no struggle. They just want to do what they want, all in the name of forgiveness. This group never ends up growing as a Christian and often is indistinguishable from the world. This group is often a reaction to, against the background, in legalism. So the problem with both groups is that they do what? They skip Jesus. 
They appeal to Jesus for their justification and the justification of their belief system, but end up missing him altogether. The legalist skips over Jesus for a righteousness of their own making and judge other people by it. The licensed people avoid the lordship of Jesus and excuse their loose living by saying they are righteous in Christ already. Both groups are to varying degrees always present in the church. They're present in this room today. So I want you to turn to your neighbor and tell you which one you think they are. (laughs) Don't do it. Both groups hurt the witness of the church to the world. Both groups judge the other and see themselves as what? More spiritual. And so in chapter 8, Paul is directly addressing those in ditch 2, the permissive or the license party. And all the legalists said, oh, 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 somebody did it. Hey, hey. All right. At least some of us are self-aware. Don't worry, legalist, you get yours too. Um, So look at verses 1 through 4 again, knowing who he is primarily addressing. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. He says this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. You notice again, those are in parentheses. He's quoting their argument. And in this moment, he's actually agreeing with them. He said, and so I would imagine that upon first reading this letter from Paul, The legalists were waiting for Paul to destroy the licensed crowd. And the licensed crowd in this moment are all saying, yeah, see, I knew he'd back us up. We all know that there's only one God and these idols and temples are powerless. They have no substance. And theologically, they were right. There is only one God. We sang it just a few moments ago. And as a matter of fact, In these verses here, it leads us to one of the most clear and powerful places in all of Scripture where we see a statement on the divinity of Jesus in verses 5 through 6. But before we look at verses 5 through 6, let's skip to verse 7. It says this. So after saying all that, he says, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. So Paul is saying that although there are some of you who possess good theological understanding and actually may be more seasoned Christians, that is not the case for all among you. And because there are some Christians among you whose connection to the pagan temple has been so ingrained into their way of life, appeasing false gods by participating in temple meals and so on, For the knowers of the crowd to arrogantly eat meat in the temples because it's their right is doing damage to their brothers and their sisters. So I think it needs to be clear that when Paul is talking about the weak in this passage, he's not talking about moralistic people who have a preference to not eat or drink in the temples. 
for one reason or another. Or even for us today, it's, it's, he's not talking about moralistic people who have a preference in this sense. But individuals who will actually be tempted to worship other gods and revert to their old lifestyle and practices. The weak are those who would have been unable to separate the eating of meat in the worship of false gods for Christian liberties. So let me say that again. The weak are those who would have been unable to separate the eating of meat in the worship of false gods from their Christian liberties. So now, let's look at the verse we skip, verses we skipped. Verses 5 through 6. He says, For although there may be so-called lowercase gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many quote-unquote lords, yet for us... There is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. Why mention the divinity of Jesus in the middle of a conversation about demon meat, right? Listen to what Stephen Hume says about this verse. Paul brings this up. Because he's saying that God is sharing his divine identity with the Son, Jesus Christ. And in a similar way, Jesus shares his glory with his people, the community of God. The mutual interior deference, love, and sharing with the community of the Trinity between God the Father and God the Son has now become the basis for the community of God's people to share their rights and to revolve around others' needs rather than standing statically and expecting others to orbit around them. What Stephen is saying is that within the Godhead, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is a love that is shared between them and is the basis for their oneness. And that same love is the basis for the community of God's people. It's the basis for our community with one another. In several weeks, we will come to 1 Corinthians 13. And it's already been quoted over sermons in the last several weeks. It's a familiar chapter on the topic of love. But I want us to hear it again this morning. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, It will pass away, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. 
But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall fully, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Paul is acknowledging that we all know that there is only one God. And that there is no real threat to the believer from the false idols, temples, and in this case, the meat being offered or eaten. But there's a gentle correction and a hint at his point in all of this in verse 1. When he says, this knowledge, it puffs up. But love, it builds up. Knowledge alone can make us arrogant and lead to a self-centered position. Love, on the other hand, can lead to humility and builds up our brothers and sisters. Knowledge with love as its aim is the true call for us as Christians. Knowledge with love as its aim is the true call for the Christian. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he says he does not know yet as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So what is the point? The aim and trajectory of our Christian rights and the freedoms that we are afforded in Jesus Christ are to be bent toward love. The aim of everything that we have in Christ Jesus, the freedoms that we have, are meant to be bent with love. Friends, a right that we have is not a command. Our freedom in Christ is meant to be spent with the currency of love. To be truly free is to be free of the obligation to do or not do something. It is actually quite frightening. It's easier to convince ourselves that our actions don't matter because they are covered in grace. And for others, it may be easier to live a rule-entrenched life to convince themselves that they are indeed righteous. But the reality of the cross is that our righteousness is complete only in Jesus. When we stand before the throne of God, our appeals to our good acts, whether in our doing or in our restraint, will not be enough. It will not stand. Our only appeal in this life and the one to come will be in Jesus Christ, his righteousness alone. And so, we are free to build one another up in love. We are free to consume or not consume, not out of self-interest, but for the sake of others. We are free, and love is the substance by which we live out our freedom. And if we are confused about what love looks like and what that looks like, we look to Jesus. We are free to love. And so as we inspect our own hearts, one thing that can serve as a signal of our personal entitlement when it comes to these freedoms is nervousness or Anxiety about giving up a personal freedom for the sake of the common good. 
It'd be wrong for me. It wouldn't be helpful for me to speak to issues of conscience for the whole when the call is for us to discern personally. But the exercise of personal freedom is never simply personal. The exercise of personal freedom is never simply personal. We are saved into the bride of Christ, a community of believers for whom Christ died. He died for us. We are not alone, and our lives are not lived in isolation. And because of this reality, we are bound to one another, even in our personal freedoms. There is much more at stake than our puffed-up sense of our personal rights. And I think that we can hear that today in Edmond, Oklahoma. There's much more at stake than our puffed-up sense of our personal rights. Let's go back to our passage in verses 8 through 13. It says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this, per- this weak person is destroyed Strong language. The brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when when it is weak, you sin against Christ. And then Paul gives us an example. He says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul has the freedom in Christ to eat in the temple to eat of this meat that would do no damage to him. But out of love, he looks to his brothers and sisters around him and he says, if food will make them stumble, then I'm not going to eat it. His freedom and his rights are bent towards love of his brothers and sisters. Friends, we are only truly free if we can give up our rights for the sake of our brothers and sisters. And to quote Stephen Um again, he says, It's not a question of what one can or cannot do. It's a question of how to serve others and live a life that makes the gospel compelling. Listen to that again. It's not a question of what one can or cannot do. It's a question of how to serve others and live a life that makes the gospel compelling. I can't stand up here in the pulpit and answer every nuanced question when it comes to um, living our life and living out our morality in our current culture. It's too nuanced. There's places that Scripture speaks to. There's places that Scripture doesn't speak to. But one thing that we can be sure of is that as we're making those decisions for ourselves, that we would be considerate of the brothers and sisters around us and what it may, how it may impact them. And that's what it means to sacrificially give something up, whether that's in the moment or for a lifetime, whether it's in a meal we choose to go to or something else that we participate in. It could be a simple moment and a decision that we make that day or it may be something we give up for a lifetime. But the point is that we do all of this, we make all of these decisions under the banner of and with the currency of love. And we can do this, why? Because if there is anyone who ever walked the face of this earth that was entitled to his rights 
it was Jesus Christ, the most truly entitled person who deserved everything, gave up all his rights to the point of death for you and I. And so as we step into a season of Lent, beginning with Ash Wednesday this week, we're embracing a season of repentance, of self-reflection, of looking at our own hearts. And today I would ask all of us, myself included, to inspect your heart for the ways that we're living out of self-entitlement rather than sacrificial love. We have the perfect example in Jesus. God's word tells us that all things are ours in Christ Jesus. And it's true. So how can we realign the aim of our freedoms away from ourselves and instead be bent toward love? Repentance. It is only in repentance, turning away from our sin, that we experience renewal. It's been so encouraging and it's been a faith-building thing for me this week as I've watched um, the revival and the renewal happening in Asbury. Amen. It's amazing. And we don't have to look at it with critical eyes. We don't have to wonder all kinds of things. We can look at it and be grateful to God. And, and you know what sparked that revival? Repentance. Repentance. And so often repentance can taste like, it can be a bitter taste in our mouth. It feels like we have to own something that, that's hard and difficult. But repentance is the actual gateway to receiving the grace and the newness and of, of his mercies and being washed in the cleansing blood of Jesus where we are actually renewed. It is a good thing, it is a gift from God. It is in repentance where God's grace meets us again and again and again and again and again until one day he returns and he makes all things new. And we're made new. And the work that God has done is made complete. And we will live under his grace and the banner of his grace and the blood of Jesus for all of eternity, secure in him. At Pentecost, the hearers of Peter's sermon, it says, were cut to the heart. And they asked, what shall we do? And Peter's response was, you must repent. It is in God's kindness that he leads us to repentance. It's in his love that he heals and restores us. Repentance and being renewed in God's grace is the most spiritually vital and fulfilling experience we can have as Christians. We need not be afraid. We have a heavenly father who loves us, who is moving towards us in our weakness, who's moving towards us in our brokenness, in our sin, the places we fall short, and he is extending his grace to us. And in this moment, he will renew you and he will heal you because of his kindness. And so for us this morning, as we consider what it looks like to be a Christian in Edmond and Guthrie and in Oklahoma, and as we um, wrestle with um, decisions that we make that are clear or less clear, um, may we be a people whose decisions are made um, with a bend towards love that our freedom and our rights that we have in Christ Jesus are spent in the currency of love. I want to invite you to stand with me.
Father, I thank you um, for all that you've done for us in Jesus. For the life, the death, the resurrection of the Son, for the future hope that it gives us, that we'll spend all of eternity reveling in your goodness, in your beauty, in your kindness, that our deepest desires will be fulfilled in you, and that in you is a, is a, a well that will never run dry. We spend a million years reveling in your beauty and your kindness and your goodness and in all of your attributes. And God, I thank you that we have been saved um, not just as individuals, but we have been saved into the body of Christ, that we have one another, and that this life that we, that we live now um, is to be shared among one another. I pray that this community of believers would be one that is marked by love, that in all that we do, every decision that we make, that would be one that is bent with the aim of love. And so help us, God. Help us, God, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.